Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost constant. It was Hello. Oh, hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. After sitting here staring at each other for right. the last 15 minutes. We addressed the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky, And I'm Janelle. And we are here today to talk about some murder. Some pre-ghosts. Get you pumped for later. Yes. <laughs> this is what happens before the paranormal mm-hmm. <laughs> experience. Right. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar, uh, we're a bi-weekly true crime comedy podcast variety show. Um, right, bespoke, we were saying earlier. We're yeah, very this bespoke. is a, a bespoke show. True crime. Um, we look at everything from murder to fraud to... Food crimes. Food crimes. Food yeah. crimes is real big with us. So we have we have something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we are just going to jump right into it today because we got a lot to cover. Yeah, we do. Uh, but first, this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Oh, this is what we're covering today. <laughs> This is where you want yes. to be. Yes. I was like, we have um, a content warning slide yeah. and slide. Unfortunately, you guys are trapped in a room with us. Yes. But well. for those listening at home, we will be covering some pretty heavy topics today. Uh, As you do. Uh, yes. A little, a little bit of child murder. So sorry. So sorry. That's all you. That's on me. That is all you. Um, so just a heads up on that. Mm-hmm. But... As we said, we're covering some Illinois crime today yeah. because keep it local. There's it's all plenty. About local. There's also plenty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the options are endless, really. Um, so, Janelle, yes, would you like to start us off? Oh, sure. So, we're gonna go all the way down south to Lawrenceville, Illinois, for this one, and it's right close to the Indiana border. And we're gonna go all the way back to 1997. I know. All the way. All the way back to the 90s. Get your rave hair gel going. Stuff from the 90s (laughs) is being considered vintage now. I know. It's mortifying. A little depressing. (laughs) It's like, that's my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So get yourself in that mindset, okay? Ace of Base is playing. We're there. Um, Saved by the bell. Okay. (laughs) Um, But we're gonna be discussing the murder of Joel Kirkpatrick. So. Joel was a 10-year-old boy who lived part-time with his mother, Julia Ray, and part-time with his father, Leonard. Um, The two met as teens and were married quickly, and they divorced in 1994. 
They shared custody with Joel ever since, so a lot of times he was going in between both of his parents' houses. His father was a police officer who was recently remarried to a circuit court clerk. Keep oh that boy. in mind okay. for later. Um, and Julie actually was currently back in school to obtain a PhD in psychology at the University of Indiana. So she was doing things. The two had an awful marriage. <laughs> Um, and they had a really, really terrible divorce. Oh, so yeah. And because he was a police officer, (laughs) he was doing some sketchy things, um, and was able to, um, kind of convince the courts to give him full custody by making up a lot of lies about his wife, basically. It's interesting. We were just talking about how, when we find out somebody is a police officer, we're kind of like, no. Yeah. Which is a little unfortunate. You know, we, I would like to say I try not to judge people, but it just happens. Let's be real. So, yeah. So he was kind of controlling everything, and he had full custody during the week, and she had um, Joel on the weekends. So on the weekend of October 13th was when she was spending time with him, um, and they were going to, you know, have pancake breakfast, do fun mom and son things. Sounds like a good time. Um, they went to bed early. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, Julie woke up to a blood-curdling scream from the other room. So she went into her son's room, um, and as she entered, she saw a man in a mask repeatedly stabbing her son. Oh, fuck. Okay. Yeah. Zero to ten. Wow. Zero to ten. Um, Julie attacked the intruder. She crawled on top of him like a spider monkey and started punching him and kicking him. Mama mode for um, And he punched her back, obviously, and oh fled the scene out the back door. So Julie immediately calls the police, goes to her son's side. He was dead on the scene. Um, she decides to go into the backyard to see if she could see where he went. She saw some footprints in the backyard, so she's like, okay, she peeks over the um, fence, but he's gone. So quickly she goes back into the house, the police arrive, um, and they kind of just take over the entire scene. Okay. Um, Joel Kirkpatrick was stabbed 11 times in his bed. (sighs) Oh my goodness. The crime scene was full of blood everywhere, and there was debris. So in the kerfuffle that they had, there was lots of things knocked over, broken glass. There was dirt from shoes. Um, Since this was a small town, um, and he's the son of a police officer, they were really trying to be very thorough to figure out what happened. Um, They checked every square inch of the house. They went through the drains, the sinks. They even went into the septic tank. Oh, my. And every window, every door. They were okay. very, very thorough. Can you explain the septic tank thing to me? <laughs> so if you flush something down oh. the toilet, okay, it fair. stays yes. in a septic okay, tank. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what would be in the septic tank from the murder? Okay, yeah. Everything. Everything, <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. Um, so they found unidentified hair and a bloody shoe print on a piece of broken glass um, from the window where the perpetrator had allegedly entered. And they photographed Julie um, just to see, you know, obviously where the injuries were. Since she was the only person who saw this intruder, um, they were skeptical, unfortunately, from the start. Um, Now, on her shirt, there were flecks of blood as well. Okay. Um, But just 
a couple of specs. But this would kind of be something that would come back to haunt her. Now this is Joel's father, Leonard. Um, once he was informed of his son's uh, death, he began to suspect his ex-wife and he went on a crusade to try to get her arrested. Which I have a feeling he got a larger platform because of his status. And uh, the fact we'll that say. he married a circuit clerk. Oh, yeah. God. yeah. <laughs> so at first the evidence was really solidly against Julie because there was a lot of things there like unidentified hair and a bloody shoe print. She was barefoot the entire time. Right. Um, She's so, just living at her house. Yep. <laughs> right? No one wears shoes to bed at three o'clock in the morning no. unless no. you're wasted. <laughs> <laughs> On accident. Yep. That is the yep. caveat. Um, so her ex-husband uh, was really persistent. Um, and so to kind of counteract this, Julie said that she would take a polygraph test. So she took two polygraph tests, oh my God. even though they're not admissible in court. Um, Girl, this is going to be such a theme. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is going to be such a theme today. So she took two of them and she passed. But that wasn't enough. So he persistently keeps coming to the police and the investigators saying that she obviously had something to do with it. And it was because he had full custody, was his argument. So three years go by and nothing was done really in the case. They weren't really investigating anyone else. They were kind of a little bit in limbo with Julie, but due to her husband's persistence and the connection to the circuit court, um, charges were eventually brought up against her. Okay. On October 12, 2000, a Lawrence County grand jury indicted Julie Ray for her son's murder. Now, of course, it's a small town, so it was all over the newspapers. Um, since the murder, she actually moved to Indiana to be closer to the University of Indiana where she was still studying. Um, so she was taken into custody at Monroe County. And then on December 15th in 2000, uh, Julie waived extradition to Illinois. Now, this was an exchange for an agreement where she would be released on bond. Wait, so, oh, so she was saying she'd not fight the extradition so long as she could be released on bond? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. So she was kind of wheeling and dealing. Um, she then petitioned to have a change of venue for the trial because of her husband's connections. Smart. So, yep, she I knew exactly what she was doing. Her, yeah. <laughs> so she petitioned to have it changed to Wayne County in Illinois. Now, if you're not familiar with the Illinois court system, <laughs> um, it's highly political yes. and influenced by money, yes. especially down south. Yes. Um, we are considered one of the most corrupt states for a reason. Mm. <laughs> uh, so... It actually took two years before the trial even started because of all the political kind of um, wow. switching that happened. So wow. Julie would actually potentially be up against a death penalty. So if you're not familiar, the state of Illinois didn't stop having the death penalty until 2011. Yeah. Far too long. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, Oh. Due to the change of venue and Ray's defense team um, shifting, she spent the entirety of her life savings trying to obtain, like, counsel. Right. So right. it was a little bit difficult. She ran out of money, and so after that, she was kind of trying to figure out what she was going to do, and so she filed a pro se petition. Okay. And she was requesting the appointment of two capital qualified attorneys to defend her because she was up for that death penalty. Okay. Okay. Now... 
This is where they really, really fucked her. <laughs> you mean all of that before really, was not? That was the gentle fuck. Okay, now this okay, is the hard fuck. Okay. okay. That was the warning. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So they decided then to remove death penalty from the table. And so then she wouldn't qualify for those free lawyers. Wow. So she was back That's to square really one. That's some bullshit. Yeah. That's really some bullshit. So they were going for life in prison instead. Okay. So now she didn't have that um, free lawyer that she was going to get. And now she was kind of in limbo. She had no idea where she was really going to go. No resources. Um, but on February 21st of 2002, the trial opened. She was given a defense lawyer eventually. Um, and it opened in Wayne County before a Lawrence County Circuit Court judge named Robert Hopkins and then a jury of six men and women from that county. Okay. Now, the prosecutors <laughs> were really, really big assholes. Okay. And okay. they put her ex-husband on the stand right away. Of course. They elicited testimony from him that was borderline illegal, not appropriate, <laughs> um, because it was just him getting on the stand accusing her, basically. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah that's definitely not legal. <laughs> no. <laughs> sure isn't. Oh my Southern God. Illinois. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so what he kind of brought forth before the court was something that was super controversial. And um, in, keep in mind, Southern Illinois again. He told the jury that his ex-wife actually considered having an abortion when she was pregnant with Joel. Now, this is a total political move. She was actually raised in a really highly religious household. This is Southern Illinois, very, very pro-life. Was that um, true? I mean... No. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, my um, God. So she got on the stand and said that that wasn't true. She adamantly denied it. But wow. because he was there from the jump and said it first, it kind of got them thinking. And because of where it was located, people who have a lot of deeply religious connections um, insinuated a lot of things. Oh so it was already not in her favor. Um, she was kind of on her own. The public defender wasn't that great. You know, that happens. It happens. Um, yeah. And it was one public defender for her and three prosecutors. So it was just That's totally not fair. evenly That's, matched. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, Julie was convicted on March 4th, 2002, and she was sentenced to 65 years in prison. Oh, my gosh. Now... At the same time, a woman named Diane Fanning, who was the lovely lady on the side, um, was writing a true crime book about this motherfucker <laughs> named I know. Tommy Lincells. Tommy Lincells. He's actually a very prolific serial killer. Oh. Um, Sells was currently in prison in Texas on death row for the 1999 murder of 13-year-old Kayleen Harris and the attempted murder of 10-year-old Crystal Searles. Okay. So um, he picked up these two girls, murdered one, tried to kill the other. She survived, and that's how they were able to catch him. Wow. Um, wow. While he was in custody, he confessed to killing dozens of other people. Oh, my God. Which eventually would connect to 20 murders. 
<laughs> Holy smokes. Yes. So there are other estimates, however, that cells killed close to double that amount. Wow. Because he just couldn't remember all of them. <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. Were they all kids? So, yes, they were. Ooh, they were all under God. the age of 18. Oh, no. Now, he cr- killed across the South and the Midwest. So he was traveling around a lot, um, often hitchhiking or often picking up people. So on the road, constantly traveling, going from job to job, didn't really have a a home. Um, His murders actually dated all the way back to 1979. Wow. So if you've listened to our podcast before, we've talked a lot about freeway systems and murder. Um, Also, hitchhiking was very big back then. People were like, sure, get in my car. car. Yeah, yeah. Nothing bad ever happens in a station wagon. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Fanning was corresponding with Sells to write the book. And over the past couple of years, she was really getting to understand him and kind of was really getting to know him as a person and the different things that he kind of set himself up as um, and the stories that he would tell. And it was in 2002, right after Julie Ray was convicted, when Fanning was watching a 2020 episode, which happened to be about Julie's case. And something sounded a little sketchy. Okay, a little. As she listened to the story, uh, Julie recounting um, the intruder, the methodology of the killing, Fanning suspected that the killer could be an intruder similar to Tommy Lynn Sells, because he did the exact same things. So in June of 2002, Sells is corresponding with Fanning and starts to describe a murder he participated in of killing a young boy in his bedroom. And then being attacked by a woman. Oh, my God. Does that sound familiar? Oh, my God. (laughs) So Fanning realizes that he is describing the murder of Joel Kirkpatrick. Wow. Just from watching Yeah, uh, she connected the dots, as a true crime author does. That's impressive. (laughs) That's impressive. So she decides to go to Texas to visit him in person. And this is mid-July. He's on death row. Ooh. So she goes down there, and he basically confesses to her that he murdered Joel Kirkpatrick. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So a year later, her book comes out, and Fanning is hoping that this book would kind of get the ball rolling and get investigators to reopen the case. Now, her book's called Through the Window because that was his favorite thing to do, break into houses through the window. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um. Now, while she is doing a lot of press releases and talking about the book and trying to get interest in the case, Julie Ray is appealing left and right. Nothing's happening. Um, Now, her case and this book kind of started getting a little bit of interest for a particular group downstate called the Downstate Illinois Innocence Project. Okay. And this organization works on wrongfully convicted people in the state of Illinois, specifically in the South. Um, They were kind of curious, and so they reached out to Fanning to see what she knew, if there was anything extra she left out of the book. So they started to work together to try to get Julie Ray free. Um, In September, Fanning held a press release about Sells being the murderer. Like, straight up, just like... He, he confessed. Did it. He did it, yeah. <laughs> um, and then later in 2004, police eventually did come to him in Texas and interviewed him about the murder, and he again confessed to killing the child. 
Eventually, in June, the 5th District Appellate Court decided to vacate Julie's conviction and remand her case for a new trial. Nice. So the ball started rolling. That's good news. Now, the Chicago law firm Schiff Harden enters into the scene, and they partnered with the Center on Wrongful Convictions to defend Julie Ray. So now she has a lot of people on her defense team. That's great, yeah. And she's going into her new trial. And during this time, she was actually released on bond. So she wasn't still in jail. Oh, good. So she was able to kind of have somewhat of a normal life for the time being. Um, And then the, the case changed venues again. Okay. So she was able to further remove herself. So it changed to Clinton County. Um, prosecutors in the case tried to make a fuss over the defense entering into new evidence, Sell's confession of the murder. They were like, no, 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 no. This confession has nothing to do with this case. Uh, (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the whole point of a post-conviction process. Yeah. Um, you know, recent laws have kind of changed some of these things, Mm -hmm, which, mm -hmm. ugh. Um, but... Yeah, that's kind of the whole point of a post-conviction process is additional investigation. If new things come up, like... Like a confession. Correcting (laughs) mistakes, maybe. So they tried really hard, but to no avail. So the judge ruled that cell statements were admissible in the retrial. And they started the trial in August of 2005. And by July of 2006, Julie Ray was found not guilty of the murder of her son. Okay, so this started in 97? Yep. And 2006 uh-huh. is okay? <laughs> wow. Now, wow. unfortunately, Tommy Lynn Sells was never charged with the murder of Joel Kirkpatrick. Are you fucking kidding me? Nope. Because Texas. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Texas, being Texas, would not allow for Illinois to question him further about the murder of Joel Kirkpatrick. <sighs> And also, another murder that happened in 1987 that he confessed to, a quadruple homicide of the Darden family in Ina, Illinois. Oh my God. What the fuck, Texas? Why? What the fuck, Texas, indeed. Why? (laughs) So, on April 3rd, 2014, Sells was executed by the state of Texas. I mean, good. He was already in jail for for various murders. I guess. Um, and oh Julie God. Ray actually received $87,000 from the state of Illinois for her wrongful conviction. That's impressive. Yep. That's, so, that is not typical. <laughs> $87,000, full exoneration, and then she got remarried and moved to Tennessee where she currently lives and Good. works in homeopathy. <laughs> oh, well, so, okay. Um, I mean, I'm, got, so I'm glad she's happy. Right? <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. That is a lot. Um But, I mean, Illinois, man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Well, thank you for that. Let's hear it for Janelle. Thank you. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't... So, for those of you who have never listened to the podcast before, um, one of the things that we do is we make sure we don't talk about specifically what we're covering. 
Um, but somehow we managed to get these themes. I don't know how we do this. We're on the same wavelength. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm going to be talking about the murder of Jennifer Lockmiller. Okay. Now, Jennifer Lockmiller was born in 1971 in Decatur, Illinois, to Richard and Norma Lockmiller. She was one of five kids and graduated high school with honors and then went on to attend Illinois Wesleyan University before transferring to Illinois State University to study journalism in 1992. This is classic Illinois State 90s. Look at that scrunch in that hair, girl. Isn't that great? (laughs) I love that, yeah. Um, One of her biggest accomplishments was overcoming an eating disorder um, that she had battled pretty much all through high school. Uh, And her and her mother, Norma, were able to establish a support group for eating disorders, and she started speaking about her own condition. Um, Her mom also described her as beautiful, brilliant, full of potential. I mean, she really had, like, a lot going for her at the time. Uh, Now, while attending the School for Journalism, Jennifer was able to get a student job at the Daily Vedette. Um, which okay. is like, this is like the 100-year anniversary, right? <laughs> um, I just love the vintage style of the 90s stuff. Um, so this was at the beginning of 1993. Now, Jennifer was friends with another woman named Morgan Keefe, and the two had made plans to get together in late August. That's why when Keefe had not heard from her friend in a few days and when Jennifer failed to show up to their prior engagement, she became incredibly concerned. And yeah, this is where you have to like call a landline and be like, oh my God, yeah, put it in my planner. I'm coming over, you know? Or, yeah, and and literally all she could do was go to the apartment. Like, it's, you just gotta show up. So she decided to go over to Jennifer's apartment. When she arrived, the door was unlocked. So she entered and she found Jennifer dead. Um, There was a pair of scissors protruding from her chest. Mm and something tied tightly around her neck. Now, police were called immediately, and they began investigating. Um, When they started their investigation, they discovered that her body had started to decompose. So she had been there for a few days. They were thinking in the range of two to four days, which would kind of match up with the last time that um, her friend had spoken to her. Um, She was found partially unclothed, although there were no signs of sexual assault. A later autopsy would reveal that Jennifer had died due to strangulation by the cord from her alarm clock. There were not any indications of forced entry, and it didn't appear that anything had been stolen, which led the authorities to believe that the suspect was somebody that she knew. So... Very early on in the investigation, police focused on people who were close to Jennifer and particularly men and ex-boyfriends, including Alan Beeman, Michael Swain, Stacy Bubba Gates. Oh, Southern and, Illinois. Yes. <laughs> and Larby John Murray. Larby's Larby's not a name I've ever heard. (laughs) So Swain and Beeman were actually roommates at the time of the murder, and Swain was dating Jennifer at the time of her death. But he was pretty quickly cleared after it was confirmed he had been working for a high school bookstore in Elmhurst at the time of the murder. Gates was also interviewed by police because he had recently moved to Peoria in order to rekindle his relationship with Jennifer. Okay. Yes. (laughs) They decided to ask Gates to take a polygraph test, 
which uh, showed he gave, quote, erratic and inconsistent answers. However, this report was not turned over to the assistant state's attorney at the time or the future defense attorneys that would work on the case. Also, don't they ask, like, yes or no questions? Yes. How erratic can your yes and no be? Very. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, 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 no, no, yeah. (laughs) The classic Midwest. Midwest. Yeah, no, yeah, no. (laughs) Um, Although the polygraph was inconclusive and really, like, we could talk about the efficacy of polygraph tests for hours, (laughs) really, um, that's an entirely different conversation. Authorities, they decided not to pursue Gates as a suspect because there was a check-in log at a Peoria school that showed he was working on August 25th, the day of the murder. So this left Alan Beeman and Larby John Murray. Now, Murray seemed to be the most promising suspect because not only was he Jennifer's marijuana dealer, but also one of her lovers. Hell yeah. <laughs> Listen, you gotta get a discount. Also, that really, that looks like a stock photo of like. It could be. Just, it looks like something I'd find in a frame at Hobby Lobby. Like, Does this look like a murderer to you? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, uh, he was a drug dealer and had previous run-ins with police. Um, He also had apparent domestic violence issues. Uh, One of Murray's girlfriends told police that he took steroids and would become erratic. (laughs) That's like the opposite of a weed dealer. Like, they're supposed to be like mellow and chill. Well, you need something. You gotta have something to bring you up and then something to bring you back down. Steroids! Uh, So when he was interviewed by police, Murray first claimed that he had left town on August 24th, so the day before the murder, but his girlfriend talked to police and said, no, we didn't leave until the afternoon on the 25th. And so he went back to police and was like, just kidding, we (laughs) left on August 25th so that his story would match hers. Now, authorities also had Murray take a polygraph, but they were never able to complete it because he refused to follow instructions. Oh, I thought he was going to go into a fit of roid rage. (laughs) That could have been it. They were not clear on what the not following instructions included, but like, maybe. (laughs) Um, Now, this is from a later lawsuit against one of the officers in the case, um, quote, the examiner later agreed that the refusal to follow instructions could have been intentional. No. No, yeah. Throw a polygraph Mm. test? I know, who'd guess? (laughs) Now, despite this and his inconsistent story, police decided to put their sights on the final remaining suspect, Alan Beeman. Now, Beeman was also involved with Jennifer. Wow. (laughs) That is a look. (laughs) It's it's a look. Uh, Beeman was also involved with Jennifer. The two had kind of had this like on and off relationship up until about a month before the murder. Um, they, had, they had gotten into numerous verbal altercations, um, but there was no evidence that Beeman had ever like attacked her or used violence against uh, Jennifer in any of those instances. Beeman's alibi was that he had recently moved back in uh, with his parents in Rockford, Illinois. Shout about- out to Rockford! <laughs> 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 uh, so he had just moved back to Rockford, and uh, Rockford's about two hours away from Blooming- Bloomington Normal. 
So while the prosecution was building their case, they decided to stage a time trial to see if it was possible for Beeman to uh, drive from Rockford, commit the murder, and then make it back in time to be witnessed by his mom at their house. Was it taking 90? Is it taking 90? It's that quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is, again, from the later lawsuit. The, the state's theory was laid out as follows. Quote, Beeman drove from normal on August 25th, uh, drove, um, excuse me, drove to normal on August 25th after visiting a bank in Rockford at 10, 11 a.m., killed Jennifer at noon, and then drove back to Rockford where he was observed by his mother in his room at 2.15 p.m. Beeman's whereabouts were accounted for in Rockford at all times on August 25th, except between 10.11 and 2.15 p.m. Police officer Friesmeyer was able to establish Beeman's ability to drive to normal and back during that time by driving over the speed limit throughout the trip. However, he also claimed that Beeman could not have driven from the bank to his parents' home to place two phone calls at 10.37 a.m., phone calls which, if they had been placed by Beeman, proved indisputably that he could not have also driven to normal to kill Jennifer because the bank was too far. Um, In the bank-to-home time trial, though, Friesmeyer took the more traffic route and followed all speed limits. Okay. So there's some problems with this time trial. You know, still, Beeman was the one that they decided to charge with the crime. Now, the entire time, Beeman maintained his innocence and honestly was like counting on his alibi to prove that he couldn't have done it. Meanwhile, the prosecution argued jealousy as a motive and claimed he was the only one who had motive and ability to commit this crime. How many boyfriends are we at? Four. (laughs) Okay. The four Um, four big ones. I don't think so. Yes. (laughs) Um, So before the case went to trial, uh, prosecuting attorneys filed a motion in limine, which essentially just means it's stuff that happens before the case goes to a full trial in front of a jury. You're a fancy lawyer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, It's it's stuff they decide before it's in front of a jury. So they filed this motion in limine limine to exclude any testimony or discussion of other relationships that Jennifer had with other men outside of Beeman and Swain, claiming that they didn't have anything to do with the case. But then Not you're trying important. to say that he's jealous? Yeah. Of, of no what, one. Of, of what, no one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and I, that's part of the reason why they kept Swain in is they had found uh, fingerprints of both Beeman and Swain on the clock, hmm. which they were both staying over at her apartment. So Yeah, someone's got to hit snooze. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they also asked... Um, the, that the defense not be able to present evidence of alternative suspects unless they can prove that it wasn't speculative. Now, keep in mind, the defense at this point had not been given any of these reports of the polygraphs, um, any of these reports in relation to Murray's investigation as far as like prior domestic violence issues and his record. Um, so they didn't have any reason at the time to believe that they had anything other than speculation, which is un- unfortunate. So the motion was granted. Oh, boy. (laughs) And the case went to trial in March 1995. In April 1995, Beeman was found guilty and received 50 years in prison. He did file a direct appeal that he lost two to one, although the dissenting judge, Robert W. Cook, wrote that he would have overturned the conviction due to lack of evidence. It's sketchy. Could have, would have, should have. I know. Oops. Yeah. (laughs) 
So Beeman began his post-conviction process, uh, which involves vast reinvestigations. I know we talked about that earlier. A lot of appeals. Um, specifically, he worked with the Northwestern University Center on Wrongful Convictions with attorneys Jeffrey Erdangan and Kieran Daniel, um, who were able to discover this evidence that the state failed to hand over. And um, they also discovered the extent to, to which the jury was misled about the timeline of events on the day of Jennifer's murder. The appeal made its way all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court, where Beeman's attorneys claimed, quote, Beeman was denied due process of law by the state's failure to correct Detective Friesmeyer's testimony that it was not possible for the petitioner to arrive home to make the telephone calls on the morning of the murder. His trial attorneys were ineffective because he failed to investigate and present available evidence, tending to prove that petitioner made calls from his residence on the morning of the offense, and his right to due process of law was violated by the state's failure to disclose material information about John Doe, which is what they were calling one of the former ex-boyfriends, um, who was a viable alternative suspect. So in May 2008, the Supreme Court released an opinion. Um, <laughs> we love those. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually, honestly, it was really interesting because they, they sift through all of this information really with a fine-tooth comb. They went step-by-step step through everything that the state presented and was like, here's why it sucks. <laughs> I wish um, that's what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> here's why this evidence sucks by the Illinois State Supreme Court. Um, so they released an opinion and they found that the state did indeed violate Beeman's due process and his conviction was vacated and remanded back down to the lower courts. Now, at this point, um, the state's attorney has an option. It's not just like over when it gets remanded. The state's attorney has an option to retry or to dismiss the case. Uh, and in January 2009, they announced that they were dropping all charges against Beeman. He then, shock. I know, because a lot of times, let's be real, like a lot of times prosecutors do not want to admit their mistakes. Yeah. Police do not want to admit their mistakes. Mm -hmm. There are so many times where they're like, we still think he's guilty, even though there's very obvious evidence yeah. to the contrary. Like someone could have killed them in front of him and be like, no, nah, no, I don't think so. Still. Yeah. Uh, he then filed for a certificate of actual innocence, which sounds like something you probably shouldn't have to do, <laughs> but... Um, even though you get your conviction overturned, the and, and even if it's like vacated and dismissed, all of that will still show up on your record if they run a background check. Um, it'll still show that you were charged with murder, right? which can be problematic. Out of context. Yeah. yeah. Just trying to apply to this Hardee's, okay? I yeah. did not commit the actual murder. <laughs> so what the Certificate of Actual Innocence does is it essentially removes the conviction entirely from your record and indicates that you should not have a record. The Certificate of Actual Innocence was granted in April 2013, and just for good measure, in 2015, as then-Governor Pat Quinn was leaving office, he decided to grant Beeman an innocence pardon, which honestly was largely seen as more of a symbolic gesture, yeah. um, but still nice. Yeah. I mean... These are like all the right things that should be happening. <laughs> well, a little, a little I mean, late, yeah. like after yeah. the fact. Um, so Alan Beeman, in total, spent 13 and a half years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Now, Jennifer Lockmiller's murder, unfortunately, still remains unsolved and open. Um, what? Yes. 
Do I know what happened to Murray? I have no idea. I could not find anything outside of this murder investigation, so... There's so many other boyfriends. What? I don't know. They just were like, I guess it's fine. The most recent article I could find um, about the case was from 2018, where Normal Police Chief Rick Bleichner said, quote, at this point, we consider it an inactive case. If new information comes forward, that would change, and we would follow up on it. No, you won't. Yeah. So, just to end... um, (laughs) On that big fucking bummer. On that big note. Yeah, it's interesting (laughs) that we both kind of covered wrongful convictions, although it's kind of hard to, like, not throw a rock at one in Illinois, because... Yeah, because there's so many. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And when I bring this up to people, they almost don't believe me that, like, Illinois is one of the largest offenders, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I do want to kind of like lay out the track record that Illinois has with wrongful convictions. (laughs) Give us the stats. Yeah. (laughs) So the National Registry of Exonerations releases an annual report. They have not released the one for 2022, but um, for last year's 2021 was incredibly telling. So in 2021, Illinois had 38 exonerations, 20 more than any other state. Yeah. Uh, This also made it the fourth year in a row that Illinois has led the nation. Number one. (laughs) Number one. I guess, I I was going to say, I guess if we need to be number one in something, but like, could it just not be that? But also, if you look at it this way, though, I'm going to do a half full glass here. Someone has to. Maybe we're doing more due diligence to overturn that than other states yes but also we had a bigger mess to clean up because (laughs) according to the report illinois the illinois ranking continues to be driven by cases tainted by misconduct of corrupt police officers led by sergeant ronald watts of the chicago police department who planted drugs on people after they refused to pay bribes uh-huh, uh-huh. We, we, we have covered we have covered this some of this and it was like a whole sweeping like hundreds of people like it's crazy Mm -hmm. the amount of people so they're still like trying to rectify that in illinois um nationally in 2021 48 percent of exonerations involved homicide which is staggering too many (laughs) and the average exoneree spends 11 and a half years in prison for crimes that they didn't commit so things to think about this is something that (laughs) i know this is something that janelle and i are both really passionate about because like Anytime you have humans involved in a system, like there's going to yeah. be imperfections, but y'all, like <laughs> one wrongful conviction is too many. Yes, yes. Um, so that is the case of <laughs> the murder of Jennifer, the unsolved murder of Jennifer Lack Miller. Illinois welcomes you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and that really has been that our episode. Is, yes, that is our episode. Yeah. Um, so if you enjoyed what you heard today, you can find more episodes just like this at badtastecrimepodcast.com. Uh, Maybe see a therapist too. Yeah. Know why you yeah. enjoyed yeah. it so much. Yeah. Uh. We don't have a problem. We're fine. We're fine. It's You're fine. <laughs> Um, we also want to say thank you to Side Street Studio Arts uh, for putting on Dark Matters and Ghostly for running our sound. Thank you guys very much. Um, you've been a lovely audience. You've been a lovely audience, <laughs> yes. Uh, this has been the Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> well, they discovered upon their arrival...